Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning we'll come to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. And I'd like to read from verses 9 through 13. This is God's Word. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of, bro of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your power is made perfect in weakness. We thank you that you and your grace speak to us. This morning as we, as we come, we do look to you and ask for your help. We know that unless you come, unless you send your spirit, unless you speak, all that happens in the next half an hour is in vain. Many of us have come week in and week out and have been in church most of our lives. We pray that the routine of worship and the routine of preaching would not dull our senses to you, our great and glorious God, speaking to us. So awaken us now, we pray. Help us to be a people eager to listen to what you have to say to us. And Father, help me as a guest here. Uh, Father, I, I just want to deliver your truth and your love to these dear people. So please use me to bless all of us with Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. What is... We good? Just let me know if I need to do anything. Good? Yeah. Well, it is a privilege uh, to be back with you. I think I say it every time that I come to Five Points. I'm so thankful for you as a church. I'm thankful for your elders. Uh, around five, six years ago now, we, we moved to Ann Arbor to start the church, and I met with many churches, and I came to Five Points and met with the elders here, and it really was the most encouraging meeting I had uh, with any church as we were starting the church in Ann Arbor. So I say that sincerely. The elders here uh, listened to a guy that just had a dream at the time of starting a church in Ann Arbor. There was just a few of us, very few of us starting the church, uh, but your elders were supportive. I know you prayed for us, and it, it was a great encouragement uh, during a, a key time in our, our ministry. And thankful for the friendships uh, with the sheriffs for many, many years 
and uh, just just thankful to be able to bring uh, God's word to you this morning. So I'd like to look at these verses, and I I want to approach these verses in a bit of an unconventional way. I want to have a main point where we just ask the question, what is the church? And then from that, I'll unpack that for much of the sermon. From that, I want to look at two questions. How do we as the church engage with outsiders, those outside the church? We see that in the text. And then how do we as the church engage with each other? So here as we come to this text, I think we see Paul directing this young church in Corinth. He's directing them as to how to engage with one another and with those who are not a part of their their church. And I think as we come to this text that the Corinthians, at least, have misunderstood Paul. He's, He's talking about some key issues. He's very serious about sexual immorality and this this whole list of sins. These are serious concerns. And so he's telling them to interact with those inside the church in a certain way and those outside the church in a certain way. And I think some have have misunderstood Paul's message. Uh, For example, recently I've been reading uh, a number of Civil War books. I'm kind of on a a Civil War focus. And I was reading this book uh, called Killer Angels. And in the book they talk about how in the Civil War regiments received communication, received uh, their strategy through the bugle call. And so the bugler, right, trumpeter or whatever a bugle is, would, would, would play his thing, and all the soldiers would know what they're supposed to do. They're, they're supposed to charge in the battle, or they're supposed to retreat, or they're supposed to wake up or eat, or all, all kinds of different bugle calls, different distinct bugle calls that told the, the soldiers what to do. And in this book, this soldier recounts the time that after the bugler bugled his call, half the regiment charged and half the regiment retreated because they didn't understand the bugle call. It didn't go well for them in battle. And I think that's a little bit of what is happening here in the church in Corinth, and I think it's a little bit of what's happened over many years in the history of the church. We don't understand here Paul's call as to how we are to engage in different ways with the world around us, the world outside the church, and with each other in the church. And I think, if you just think about your experience, maybe the churches that you've been a part of over the years, you see this pendulum swinging back and forth between we must hunker down we must protect ourselves from all the evil influence out, out there. We've got to form this bubble, come close, protect ourselves from this negative influence out there, or churches just no standards, no, no differences, accommodating to, to culture. And I think these verses point us to a, an amazingly beautiful different way for us to be the church. So we can think about this as a community, for us to be the church in this world, an amazingly beautiful way for the church and then for us as individuals, wherever you find yourself, whatever whatever your calling is, wherever you are, God, through these verses, is helping us to understand how we are to live in this world. And what we see in 1 Corinthians 5 is modeled for us as we look at the life of Jesus Christ. And what we see here in these verses, this way forward, this way forward through Jesus Christ, we have power to live in this way. It's, it's great, great stuff. So a few questions as we begin. 
few questions to help us enter into this topic. Number one, if you're a part of the church, if you're part of the church, how do you love and protect what God has given to you and at the same time have an influence on the world? How do we protect what's important and yet at the same time influence the world? Number two, if you're not a part of the church this morning, one of my concerns is to correct is to correct an inaccurate understanding of just who the church is, who the church is supposed to be. Uh, so often the church has misrepresented who we are, what, what our identity is as the people of God. So this morning, does your view of the church need to change? If you're visiting this morning, not a part of the church, I want you just to listen to hear what Scripture says about who the church is supposed to be. And then lastly, for all of us, how do we treat those who are different from us? How do, how do we treat those who are different from us? Only God can give us the strength to love those who are different. And the church is to be a place where people are passionate about both welcoming those who are different, welcoming the outsiders, and then preserving what matters. So I think the reason why, as we look at the history of the church, and, and for many of us, as we look at our experiences, pendulum swings back and forth between hunkering down and protecting and just no standards, I think the reason is we often lose sight of who we are. And that's why I have a little bit of an unconventional sermon in the sense I want to answer that first question, who is the church, who are we, and then use that answer to answer these next two questions. How do we engage with those outside and how do we engage with those inside the church? That's more specifically uh, our text this morning. So first, this, this main point, what is the church or who are we as the church? This is a necessary corrective. When we think about the world around us, as we think about those who are not in the church, how do they think of us? Right? We, we need to know that most people think that the church is just a group of people who one day decided to get their spiritual act together, who decided to focus on some good morality, to do what's, what's right, to think about God more. And that is not the church. Now, it would be easy to come to 1 Corinthians 5 and, and these verses that we're looking at and use these verses to support that inaccurate view, incorrect view of the church. We see phrases like remove that person from, from the group early in, in, in this chapter. But that's not who we are as the church. I'm sure many of you have heard of Pastor Tim Keller and his recent passing. But one of the, one of the great encouragements of his teaching is that he distinguished religion from gospel living. Now, religion doesn't have to be a negative term, but he's, he's using it to say this is not what true Christianity is. Religion, he says, operates with this mindset. I obey, therefore God accepts me. And if we think with this mindset, if we as a group live with this mindset, it drastically changes who we are. Either we live in constant fear that we're not obeying so God doesn't accept us, so we're always worrying about what God thinks, or we become very proud people because we have obeyed. We are different, therefore God accepts us, and that changes the way we interact with each other, and it changes the way we interact with the world. But Keller, in his preaching again and again, would call us to gospel living, which is a different mindset. Not, oh, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I'm accepted by God, therefore I, I obey. God has worked first. God has come. 
God has changed me. God has changed us. That's who we are as a church. God has come. So that's just the first really big answer to this question. Who are we? We are people who have found acceptance by the activity, by the action of God. And that affects us. It changes us. So we don't have as much as us and them attitude with those who aren't like us. We have just been people who have received God's grace, who have, who have been changed. This drastically impacts us as a community. I'd like to look, at, and I want to, to look at five so we're still under this first point, what is the church? And I, what I want to do is give five answers to this question, and then we'll look at those, those other two questions of those outside and those inside. So five answers. The church is a people called out by God. So God's action. The church is a people, number one, called out by God. Second, the church is a people forgiven and accepted by Christ's sacrifice. And third, the church is a people indwelt together by the Holy Spirit. Fourth, the church is a people who are those who have received God's grace. We are partakers of grace. And then fifth, the church is a people transformed for the good of the world, transformed by God for the good of the world. So I hope you see this emphasis again and again. We are who we are because God has worked, because God has acted. And that changes our approach with those outside and those inside. So quickly, let's just work through these five kind of foundational answers, and then we'll look at our text. First, the church is a people called out by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, called to be saints together. The, very, the, the Greek word ekklesia is the called out ones called into light, called into life. If we're a part of the church, it's because God decided to call us. It's what they call an effectual call. It's a powerful call. God comes, and he opens our ears to hear the call, and he brings us into the church. It's not because of anything special in us. We can go back to, to Deuteronomy when God comes to the people of Israel. It's not because of anything in you. You're the smallest nation. There's nothing great about you. I just chose to call you, and you have become mine. So if you're a part of the church this morning, it's because God, in his grace, has called, has called you. It's not because we're better. It's not because we got more serious about religion or, or our relationship with God even. It's God's work. So that's first. We're, we're called out by God. God's action, too, forgiven and accepted. And you look at this, this chapter, 1 Corinthians 5, earlier on, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says to them, and, and this is this theme, forgiven and accepted. He says, as you really are unleavened. You see that in verse 7? All right, let's read verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. What is that, what is that picture? What is Paul saying there? To be leavened is to be tainted, to be dirty. He says, don't live that way because you have been cleansed. You have been washed. You have been forgiven and accepted. Look at the, the next phrase. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Through the work of Jesus Christ, something has happened. You've been called out and you have been forgiven and accepted, cleansed of your sin. Who are you? You're the people 
who know this Christ, who is our Passover lamb. We're accepted, therefore we obey. This is who we are. Again, God, 100% God working to do this in us. Third, indwelt by the Spirit. This is earlier in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 3, this is, this is emphasized. But what is, what is the temple that we see here? In 1 Corinthians 3, the church as a people is God's temple being built together or dwelt by the Spirit. We are the place of God's special presence in this world. The Holy Spirit actually dwells not only in us, but in us as community in a special way. Connected to Christ individually, but also together connected to Christ. The way Peter unpacks this in 1 Peter 2, he says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. This is communal language. What is the place of God's special presence in this world? It is the church. It is the church. This points to an amazing interconnectedness and an amazing interdependence that is often foreign to the way we Americans think, we individualistic Americans think about the church. We are a temple built up together. Stones in a wall. You take one stone out, the wall falls down. This is the picture. Who are we? Called out by God, forgiven and accepted because of the work, the sacrifice of Christ, and we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is with us, uh, among us, changing us as a community. This is part of what we want to protect. And as we come to 1 Corinthians 5, and, and, and Paul is saying, get rid of that, that, that unleavened, get rid, get, get rid of the leaven in, uh, in your community. Get rid of all that's bad. Get rid of the pollution. It's understanding this temple imagery, who we are. The Spirit is with us. The Spirit is changing us so that we can actually forbear with one another. It's not easy to forbear with one another. We can actually love and, and forgive and support and encourage even when they annoy the heck out of us. The Spirit is with us. We're the temple of, of God, the Spirit dwelling with us us as a community. This is who we are. Two more. Fourth, the church is a people partaking of God's grace. And I, I do want to look at 1 Peter 2. Look at 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, Peter says. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And again, I hope you're seeing this emphasis. It's all God acting. It's all God bringing about change. God creating this community, this temple where he dwells. We are a people who have received mercy. So as, as we think about who we are as individual Christians and as a church, if we think we are a people who have received mercy, we've done nothing to deserve it, how does that change the way we interact with each other and with the world around us? We're, we're just those who have received mercy. We, we would be just like 
That person outside who's so morally, we would be just like them if we had not received these gifts from God, this grace from God, this, this mercy from God. One of, one of my concerns as I think about the church as a whole is that as this world changes, and for those of us you know, middle-aged or older, you see how much the world has changed. You see things like gender confusion. You, you, you look outside your home, and you think, how in the world can people think in these crazy ways? I think the danger is that we think we're different from those who struggle in certain ways. When really the only difference is the gifts that we've received from God, the grace that we've received from God, the mercy that we receive from God. My, my wife has a, a, has a close friend who is not a Christian. Uh, she met, met her, I think, at a, at a library playgroup years ago. And this woman will come over. She's recently divorced now, but two little boys. And she's raising these two little boys with no stability in the area of gender. So if the little four-year-old boy wakes up and wants to wear a dress and a hair tie and a bow and ear, she, go for it, go for it. And you look at this boy and you place yourself, I place myself in his shoes. If I was raised in that way, maybe I would grow just as confused. When we just think of the big idea of transgenderism and, and as a church we kind of attack that, this is an us-them attitude. But when we realize these are people who may not have received the gifts that we've received, the confusion that comes is not because they're morally different. It's not that. We've received grace. And of course we uphold the standards of God and Scripture. We uphold the truth. We protect our community. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians 5. But we welcome all among us the most confused. We, we look at Jesus. Who did Jesus move towards? Who moved towards Jesus? The outcast. The great sinners. Do we live in such a way that they're drawn to us? That they know they are welcomed here? We are just people who've been called out by God. We're just people who are partakers of grace. We welcome them and pray that they would receive God's grace too. Fifth, if you understand, we're still in this big first point. Hopefully you're tracking with me. Fifth, a church is transformed by God for the good of the world. Again, first, first Peter 2. Chosen race, that theme of being chosen. A royal priesthood, temple theme, the place of God's presence. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, precious to God. But then we see this missional theme, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, that you may be a, pro a pro prophet, a, a proclaimer of his excellencies, of his excellence, not our excellencies, not of our moral perfection, not of all that we, no, of his excellency, of his grace. And then Peter continues, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, right, you're in the world, but you're a sojourner, you're an exile, you're a foreigner in the land, but you're still there. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So you're among them, you're with them. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds because they're close enough to you and glorify God in the day of visitation. This is our calling. Resident aliens in this place, being changed and transformed by the grace of God, living in the midst of this world. 
living in this world. So that's, that's that foundational point. Remember, I said it was unconventional, but now let's look at this text, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 5. And with that foundation, hopefully you can grasp onto that foundational answer of who we are as the church. Let's answer this question, the church's relationship with those outside. And look at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10. We're kind of jumping in midstream, but I think we can get this. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world, and I don't want you to go out of the world. Right? Paul isn't naive. He gets the brokenness and the sinfulness that, that resides in this world. If you live in this world, you will rub shoulders with those who have a very different view of sex, of money, of relationships, of God. Very different. That's exactly what Paul brings up. If you live in the world, if you live among people outside the church, they will have a very different view of all these things. So are we to avoid all possible evil influence? Are we to protect ourselves from what could infect us? Should we maybe form a monastic community, a ghetto with high walls so that none of this evil stuff can come and impact us or our kids? Paul says that's ridiculous. Really, look at the text. That's ridiculous. Not at all meaning, not at all. This is the mission of the church. Of course not. 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. How would they have encountered the gospel if the church was isolated from the rest of the world? Such were some of you, some of the worst ever. Such were some of you. But people rubbed shoulders with you. People interacted with you. People built a relationship and loved you. One author says the fact that Paul regards this suggestion as self-evidently ridiculous shows that his vision for the church is not isolationist. Instead, the church is to be a prophetic, proclaim the excellencies, prophetic, countercultural in the midst of an unbelieving world. That's our calling. Yes, distinguishable from the world in important ways. We think of the Holy Spirit dwelling among us as the people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. What, what, what fruit does the Holy Spirit bring into a person's life, into a community? Love, joy, patience, right? Go through the fruit, self-control, gentleness, 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 right? Distinguishable from any other community I've been a part of. Countercultural presence. Look at John 17. We see this in Jesus' prayer to the Father. In John 17, what does Jesus want for us as we live in this world? He says to his Father, I have given them your word. I have given them, my, my disciples, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. There's differences there. Because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I do not. Jesus praying to the Father, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. 
but I pray that you protect them. Well, how, how does that come to us? I think the way we protect ourselves and our kids is in the same way Jesus is, Father, I cannot protect my kids from every evil influence. I cannot form this little bubble for them to live in to, to protect them. Father, protect them as they live in this world. Of course, this is going to look different from family to family, and I'm, I'm not calling for foolishness, just throw them out there, right? No. But God is the one who must protect them from evil. We cannot create a space where there is no evil because you put your little kid in there and evil goes with him, right? It's in his heart. It's in her heart. The father must protect them. But Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I send them. He says, don't take them out, but I'm sending them into the world. We better be very careful. And man, this is a tendency. At least a tendency in my heart. It's to kind of have an aversion. They think differently about this. They think differently. And, and to be clear, I think it's very wrong because they think differently from this. But that doesn't mean I avoid them or I don't build friendships with them or I move away from them. It's not what Jesus calls us to do. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And we look at Jesus, as I, as I mentioned earlier, it's emphasized. It's emphasized that sinners were drawn to him, and Jesus ate with sinners, right? Luke 5. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, the worst of the worst? And Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The biggest sinners. The church must be a place where the biggest sinners can come. We, as the people of God, must be the people who befriend the biggest of sinners around us, who are ready to move outside these walls to engage with love, to build friendships with our primary goal, not correcting their morals or correcting their political differences, right? right. Showing them Jesus, showing them love of Jesus. That's our call. So how do we, what, what is the church's relationship to those outside? I think we see in these verses our calling. We see in Jesus' prayer, our calling. Doesn't make it easy. We've had so many conversations even recently with how to be a student on U of M's campus, a very different culture, right? Very different views of sex and all these other, how do you do it? I don't always know. The way forward is to step into relationships, asking for God to protect us and preserve us and use us. So lastly, the church's relationship with those inside the church, with each other. Look at verses 11 through 13. And there's a few big phrases here that are not easy to understand. But let me read these again. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviled, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now there's a ton, a ton here. Um, I can't unpack it all, but I, I think it's important to say a few things. 
there is a distinct community that God calls into existence in the church. A distinct community. A place of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit who is changing a people. Paul says, if there's someone in the community, a part of things, a brother or sister in the church, who they step into these sins, the, the focus here, the grammar, is ongoing sin without repentance. If someone says, yes, I'm a child of God, but they move into one of these sins, and when they're confronted, they don't repent. They don't change. They stay. A habitual sin is, is the point here. If this happens, then the church must respond in order to preserve who we are, what we've become by the power of God. That's the point. Now, I mean, again... In my church, we, we had a few sermons on this topic, and we talked about church discipline, which I, I can't go off into that, but I think it's important to say, when someone in the church, a member of the church, turns towards sin, any of us, and doesn't repent, you see the steps of one at one point, at one point removing them, right? That's what we see earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, removing them from, and calling them an unbeliever, calling them not a part of the community. That doesn't mean that we shun them. When we see them, we walk to the other side. I think in some of these verses, we start to question that. But no, we treat them as an unbeliever. How do you treat an unbeliever? You call them back to Christ. You maybe voice concern for their soul. We don't welcome them to this table anymore. We call them to repent and come back. Paul's desire is clear. In the earlier verses, he wants them to come back. So it's not shunning. But he does say here not to associate and not to eat. So we must uphold some kind of serious concern as we think about this person. We don't interact lightly with them. In love, as we interact, in love we call them to repentance. We don't act like nothing has changed. Now, in verse 11, when he says, not even to eat with such a one, I, I think there could be some cultural differences here. One author says, in, in this culture, table fellowship uh, with nominal Christians living immoral lives would seriously blur the identity of the church for God's holy people. So maybe there's some differences that if someone is excommunicated from the church, you can interact with them, you can ask them to lunch. But I, I, the, the, what's clear, whatever the different cultural expressions here, is that we must show concern because if the community is blurred, we lose who we are. As Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. So we have to think in our engagement with each other, still done with grace, still done with mercy, but we might, might get to the point where we remove somebody from among us. And we do that in love to restore them, but we must remove them to preserve who God has called us to be. Right? To preserve what we have, this precious community, the temple of the Holy Spirit, where we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our relationships, in our lives. If we don't protect that, one day we won't be that. That's the point. This is how we interact with one another. But we must see in, in this passage the difference 
the difference of how we treat sin outside the church and how we treat sin inside the church. How we treat those who do not know Jesus, who do not love Jesus, who are outside, far from us. How do we treat them? And how do we treat a brother or a sister who professes faith, who professes to have the Holy Spirit, who professes to be changed? There's a different approach. And if we understand who we are, this big picture, who we are, receivers of grace, filled with the Spirit as a community, then it's going to help us. Help us as we live in this world. These are the principles of engagement that Paul gives us. In many ways, this, these short verses could be a vision sermon for the church, for who we want to be. But as we think about it, I know in the nitty-gritty of our lives as we go to work, as we go to school, as we seek to engage with those who are very different from us, we feel our weakness. We don't know what to say. There's legitimate concern for our children that they would be polluted or infected. Legitimate. What is the way forward? I think, again, Jesus models the way for us. Father, Father, as your children face opposition, strengthen them. Protect them. Do not take them out of the world. I'm sending them into the world. But protect them from the evil one. Use them for the glory of your name. Or as Paul says in Philippians 2, as we live our lives, we should do all things without grumbling and complaining. That's different. That we may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation for some of us you're older you see it more and more man this is so crooked this is so tw- in the midst among whom you shine as lights in the world this is our calling this is our calling now i think practically as a church and we're wrestling through this as our church grows There are times when a pastor or a leader in the church should say to someone, I don't want you to be involved in this ministry. I don't want you to be a part of this because we want to leave room for each member in their specific calling, maybe as a student at at U of M, maybe in their job, to form friendships there. And the danger is that we get so many programs in the church and we raise up so many things that we can spend our lives seven days a week, all day, every day, inside the church. So how do we process as leaders? How do we process as a church? What is our calling? This is who we are. We're called to be in the midst. Jesus has sent us, and the way the church is going to grow on mission, the way people are going to experience God's grace is by each of us, the saints, the saints who are doing the mission. Right? Ephesians 4, it's the job of pastors and leaders to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry and to be on mission. How will this happen? Only by the grace of our God. Only by the power of the Spirit. Well, may God help you. Five points. Uh, We love you. We pray for you. And may God help you to understand who you are as the church, how you are as a church to interact with the world around you here, and how you are to care for one another. Protect what God has built and made. Protect 
preserve a glorious community where the Spirit dwells among us and is leading us to love. May God be our help. Please pray with me as we close. Uh, Father, we do pray that you that you would help us, each of us as individuals, as we think about those around us, whether we're students, whether we're called to work in different areas, whether we're in the home, we think about our neighbors. Father, help us to be in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation, shining as bright lights of people who have received mercy. But we need your help, even as we step towards this so often there are so many difficulties that come how do we interact how do we talk how do we show the difference so i pray for each person here and their individual callings that you would guide and bless and provide and i pray for this church as five points continues in this place you have given them this community i pray that they in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation would shine as a bright light that Five Points Community Church would be a bright light, a welcoming place for the greatest sinners around them. In Jesus' name, amen.